Hello listeners, before diving into today's episode, I wanted to share a few ways you can go deeper with the ideas I talk about in this podcast and support my work. The first is my book, The Pathless Path, which many of you have probably already heard about, but if you haven't purchased it already, I really think you'll love it. The second is The Pathless Path Community, which I just opened up as a one-time pay-what-feels-right access fee. And in that group, you can meet hundreds of other people from around the world on unconventional paths like me. Finally, I'm working on a second book tentatively called Good Work, which is going to explore my deeper relationship with work and how that led to a lot of the transformations in my life. You can follow along in my newsletter, Pathless, which you can also find a link to that in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. Without further ado, let's dive into the show. Welcome to the Boundless Podcast, exploring the human side of work. I'm your host, Paul Millard, and I'm fascinated with how we can imagine past the default path to do things that matter. I have conversations with entrepreneurs, freelancers, and thinkers who are questioning the role of work in our lives who are thinking about how we can unlock creative potential in ourselves and organizations and are carving new paths in the world to create a more human future of work. If you want to support the podcast, check out the Patreon link in the show notes. And for more information, go to BoundlessPod.com. Today, I'm talking with Jeff Hittner, who leads Your Project X, a social venture with a mission to help 1 million people find more purposeful work. He has more than 18 years experience as an entrepreneur, consultant, and change maker. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Hey, Paul. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. So today, we're going to be doing a little bit different than a normal conversation I have uh, Jeff has talked a lot in his work uh, with his students and some of his writing about career myths that people, we kind of accept their defaults we think about, but don't really question. And I thought today we'd go into 10 of these career myths. He's offered five, I've offered five. And we're going to dive into them. What are the truths behind these and what are some actions we might use to reframe them? So the I'd also note the point of this conversation is not to say we have the right answers. It's just to say we should try to go a little deeper in questioning these default beliefs and try to imagine broader possibilities. Anything to add, Jeff? No, I love that. I I was, you know, I was just thinking that um, there's some big buckets, right? If we want to sort of frame what these um, myths are around and a lot of these buckets um, are around one, it's around money, right? And expectations around money, uh, two, it's around status quo, right? And just the expectation of like what we tend to believe has to be the only way to do things. Then there's um, obviously um, a big sort of bucket around um, purpose and passion, right? And then around fear. I think those are some of the big buckets that we're going to get to in, in these in these myths. So excited to tackle them with you. So the first career myth I want to toss out there is once I get my dream job, as X, or once I make a certain amount per year, I will finally be happy. What's your reaction to this one, Jeff? Um, that it's the wrong question or the wrong like goal, I guess. Um, not the wrong question. It, it, uh, I have found over 
you know, I've changed careers half a dozen times, literally, in my life. Um, you know, real 180s from, you know, um, starting a internet company when money grew on trees in the late 90s to uh, being a teacher to 198, 8, 9, and 10-year-olds um, and everything in between. And what I found looking back on all of these forks in the road around, um, you know, dream job um, is that these forks in the road were never about answering which job was going to make my life perfect. Uh, that was the wrong question. It was always about um, which of these opportunities is going to help me become the person that I want to be when I grow up. So looking at like X dream job or Y salary as what you are going after um, is just a recipe for failure. Um, because you're not like based, basing it on, you know, what's going to make you happy and who you want to be in the world. Um, unless your life goal is to be, um, the richest person in the world, because then you'll always have a goal to be um, driving towards, I guess, and, and never be happy. Um, but, but my point is really, if, if, if we focus the goal on our personal development, um, then the job can be a component of it, um, but not the driver for it. Yeah, I think you hit it on a key point that I've grappled with throughout my journey. I, I kind of frame it as a journey now rather than a career, which is that you're putting the career first, right? And I kept shifting jobs every two years when I was working in the corporate world. And I think I was trying to address something deeper that was perhaps there's a different way I want to live than going to an office five days a week. And that was really hard for me to accept. But Asking those questions uh, really forced me to come face to face with that. And it wasn't just that, like, I hadn't done meaningful work in my jobs. Uh, there were pieces of it. And it was more shifting the focus to saying, like, okay, what was the work at where I was motivated and driven? And what were the elements that caused that? So one thing I have uh, people look at is uh, there's something called self-determination theory, uh, which was discovered, I think, in... Uh, the 1970s. I'll link to it. But uh, it's basically, are you challenged beyond your current level of confidence? Competence? Are you connected to what you're working on? And are you able to add value to other people? This is basically what motivates people. Uh, but we confuse it by we need these external titles or money. Like those things can help you feel proud and confident. But at the end of the day, it's not sustainable unless you have those core elements of uh, motivation. Yeah, and I think part of what you you get at too with with those is that they're a little bit less tangible, um, and that's why people fall back. I think uh, to things like money and title, um, because it's a lot easier to say I'm going after my VP of corporate X, Y, and Z job, or I'm going after a $200,000 job versus I'm going after an opportunity that's going to, you know, challenge me every day and push me a little bit outside my comfort zone and give me the ability to affect change in others. Those are obviously what we want, but they're a lot less tangible and a lot more difficult to point at and Require a, a different mindset, not just of us, but of our culture. Well, I I also frame that to people who are thinking about working on your own, because in some senses it is easier if you have that B, VP title um, of everyone else in your life saying like, oh, they are this, they are doing good, right? 
uh, as a solopreneur, like nobody sees the conversations I have with people or the impact I might have. Um, they're just like, they're more caught up at like, what do you actually do? What is your title? And we'll dive in, we'll dive into this one. Uh, but it can be a challenge in both directions. Yeah. I don't know if that makes sense. Do you want to take us to career myth number two? Yeah, sure. So this is a favorite one of mine. Um, you know, I just need to find my passion, right? Um, first of all, um, you know, with the work I do, I run a, um, a month long purpose accelerator, um, which helps people sort of align more closely with their purpose and experiment in new career directions. And so we talk a lot about purpose versus passion. Um, and, you know, from our perspective in the work that we do, um, you know, purpose is, is all about, um, working towards something that's greater than yourself, right? Working um, either towards a mission that's greater than yourself, that could be an organization's mission or goal, or um, to a higher sort of, um, you know, a religious belief or spiritual belief, something greater than yourself. Passion is much more egocentric. Um, it's about something that energizes you, but the challenge with something that energizes you is um, it doesn't necessarily involve other people and can be very isolating. Um, and so we really differentiate purpose and passion um, in that way. Um, and so one of the things that we run into with this idea of I just need to find my passion is a couple of things. One, um, again, passion is not what you want to go for. I think you want to go for purpose and purpose is a journey. Um, it is not something you're going to find overnight. Um, you know, I, I have people that come in and, and are mentors for our program that have been on a journey for a year and a half to sort of figure out. Um, what, what their purpose uh, really is. It's something that takes a long time, um, but it's also something that is revealing itself in little sort of what I call like breadcrumbs each and every day if you're active, actively going out there and trying to identify what really energizes you and, and what really brings you to life, right? And, and that's, a, that's a big piece of it. But um, the other aspect that people get confused about is this idea that passion or purpose is singular, right? Um, you know, as, as, as I know you talk about a lot, um, Paul, it's like people don't have one passion, right? Um, we, and I actually just had someone that I spoke with who's um, both a Cirque du Soleil acrobat and a PhD in uh, mechanical engineering. Like talk about two different, <laughs> right? Love that. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this idea that, um, we're, we're singular and even from a purpose perspective that we're, that our purpose doesn't change is just not true. Um, there was a woman in one of our programs who, um, her mother had been dying of cancer and passed away after six years. And she came to our program to say, Hey, I knew what my purpose was. It was caring for my mother and she has now passed on and I need to figure out what my new purpose is. And that's a, perfect, perfect example of how our purpose and meaning can, can change. Um, and in fact, change very quickly. Um, you find that often, you know, in, in my situation, obviously I, I'm, um, a husband and a dad and, and, you know, starting a family can totally, totally change purpose, um, for an individual. And when we frame around purpose and something bigger than just the specific job in front of us, 
once again, it's setting us up for more success as you described around this, you know, sort of dream job perspective, because you're not defining yourself around that job. It's a piece of you. And so if purpose is bigger than the specific job in front of you, um, or it's bigger than passion, which is the specific thing in front of you, then as a result, like all the challenges that come with it can be taken, um, can, can be sort of absorbed in a way that that's much more difficult if you're defining all of your happiness around that one piece of work. Right. And there's a, there's a famous study. I think you were the first one to share this with me that looks at the metrics of passion and purpose as they defined it. And I think the people with purpose but no passion actually outperformed people that were passionate about their work. Yeah, greatly. It was something like uh, they looked at 5,000 um, employees and managers of companies around the country. It was a study done by um, a professor from uh, UC Berkeley, and he found that obviously the highest performing employees were ones that were both purposeful and passionate, right? But the, the, and the lowest performers, obviously the ones with the least purpose and passion, but then I always ask people, all right, well, who do you think were the middle, you know, the, the next top performers, the ones that had no purpose, but lots of passion or the ones that had lots of passion and no purpose? And the answer is always the ones that had purpose and not passion. So that connection to something bigger than themselves really will drive more um, engagement and, and, and eventually success in, in a work setting. And one exercise you've recommended that people do is just to email friends uh, or people that know you well and ask them a question, hey, can you tell me about a time when you saw me at my best or when I was brought alive? Like, what was I like? What was I offering? How was I being in the world? And I love that in terms of, one, just like asking your friends because they know you best. And two, just trying to figure out what does bring you alive. Yeah, we are not the best um, measures of um, of defining like how good a person we are in most respects. We, as human beings, tend to focus in on all of our faults, all of our deficiencies, all of our gaps. And if and if um, you don't think that's true, just think back to your last like um, sort of job review. Right, you'll get nine fantastic, praiseworthy you know, pieces of feedback and then you'll get one piece of critical feedback and what are you going to spend the next week <laughs> ruminating about that one piece of negative feedback, right? So the same is true when we think about who we are as like well-rounded, wonderful human beings, which I think most of us are, um, or at least that's my optimistic view of, of, of who we are as, as or can be as people. It's when we send out this invitation to the people that know us well in very different contexts. So it could be to a former professor that we used to work with, or it can be a former colleague. And of course, some of our friends and our family, and you hear like from their eyes and their heart, um, you know, when you were at your best, it's, it's a stunning, um, you know, distinct observation of who you are. And um, it's a really powerful um, activity to do. So let's dive into career myth number three, and I'm going to offer this one. I can't take a pay cut from my current salary. Now, I find this one most prevalent 
in especially people who are highly educated, high, high wage earners. Um, it's almost taken for granted because I think the economy has done well for so long that like our salaries should just keep going up, right? Um, but if we reflect on the history of the world, for most of history, one, we didn't have salaries, and two, they weren't going up, right? You made what you made, um, and you did some work to earn some money. Um, but this hurt, this really holds people back because, uh, the term is the golden handcuffs, right? I have, I have friends who are making hundreds of thousands of dollars in New York who, uh, hate what they do. But they look at it and say, well, I can't just go be a teacher and make 50 grand a year. And I always just respond with, why not? Right. Uh, I think you and I have both p- taken, uh, pretty big pay cuts, right? Uh, we were both at places in our career where we could have just kind of followed the path. Our pay would have kept going up, but, um, people do look at it and say, Oh my God, how could you just give that up and go in a different way? So, um, are you happy you took taking a pay cut? Yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> that's probably not even the right question to frame. Yeah, it I was going to say it's uh, it's so the super quick answer is hell yeah, and then the longer answer is I actually think it's less about um, that and more about the fact that I don't even consider like the pay when I'm thinking about what my next career choice will be. Um, and, and part of that is also, you know, it's funny, I find it really cool that both, so you and I are at, at different life stages, right? So I am married and I have a child under two, um, you are dating, but not in a, in a space where you've got like, you know, another person that, that, that you're sort of equally responsible for and, and, and children yet. And, and I would say, um, you know, that still, um, changes how I think about pay and salary because for me, I am so happy with the work that I'm doing during the day and then I'm so happy to be home playing with my son in the evening that I can't think how like quadrupling my income is going to change that at an intrinsic level. Could it change it at an extrinsic level? Sure. I could go from living in a small New York City apartment to, I don't know, some place like with 10 other rooms. But first of all, that's not going to change my son's life. He's pretty happy. Um, It's not going to change our life. Um, And so, you know, the things that um, we're giving up by having a pay cut, things like for my wife, she would definitely buy a new outfit every day if she could. Um, You just find ways around it, right? Like she's got a sister and she shares clothes with her. And um, of course, like, you know, all of her presence then focus on clothes. Cause that's, that's like, you know, her, her one thing that she loves. And for me, it's travel. And now, you know, I've always been someone who travels on points and have been pretty good at doing that with credit cards. And now that we have a son, I've got to up my game even more because now, you know, he's about to turn two and so he won't be free. And that's just the new challenge. Um, right. but none of those things affect our lifestyle, um, by having very little pay. Well, also, it's been fascinating. I mean, I've been pretty much traveling for the past four months, and I, I've my cost of living per month now is about seventy five percent lower than it was living in Manhattan. Um, and working as an independent professional, that means I can opt to try to do seventy five percent less work mm. to support that um, life, which is, which is a challenge. And this is a challenge, right? You can't just 
work less in most full-time jobs. Most full-time jobs are, you are committed to 48 to 50 hours a week, uh, with two to four weeks vacation. Um, but I think we'll get to this around taking different breaks, but, um, one thing I've enjoyed as an independent professional is you have much more control over what you earn. Um, but I've had to reframe the connection of work and, uh, time off, uh, to do other things. Um, as everything I spend, I need to earn money for that. So then I look at my spending more than like, here's how much money I have to spend, which is how I used to look at things when I had a full-time income. Yeah. You know, I, I'm thinking of that and thinking of some of the other ways I think about it, too. I mean, um, depending on where you are in, like, in your professional experience sort of trajectory, when you decide to become a solopreneur or when you decide to, like, sort of quit the, um, the rat race and, and, and create something for yourself, um, you know, you can have different sort of financial opportunities to fall back on too. So for instance, I have um, one or two organizations that, um, you know, they're always happy to get some consulting work from me. Um, and so if there is a, a sudden need to, you know, bring in more money than the, the pittance that I make um, building my, my current uh, venture, then I can reach out to those folks and do that. And I imagine you potentially can as well as someone who can do some consulting. And, and so the point is, is less about, you know, that's kind of our new safety net in, in some respects, right, is, is building the relationships. And it's about relationships, right? It's not about transactions, building the relationships so that folks know that we're going after what we dream about from our life perspective. And, you know, if, if we come calling and say, Hey man, I really could, I would love to help you guys this month. Like it would be, you know, I need this for my family for X reason or that, like people are actually pretty open about that. That's been my experience so far. Yeah, that's awesome. So let's keep going on the money theme and I'll offer career myth number four, which is that you should have a steady income. So you should just keep doing what you're doing. Right. And this belief I've, I had somebody email me a while ago and they were dealing with freelancing and they're just having the hardest time because they use this word, I don't have a steady income and it makes me so insecure every month. Um, now she did have savings, but she just wasn't comfortable with the idea that she wasn't earning money every month. And I think there are huge challenges with this, right? Um, we do tie a lot of our worth and importance to how much money we make, how much career success we have, how much stability we have. Um, but I think there's a dark side of this of also just thinking we're the only ones out there. We have to rely on ourselves. Um, we can't ask for help. We can't go into our savings. We can't um, rely on other people for support and I think those are the things I want people to reframe out of this. It's not that like you should just go and try to not earn money, right? Uh, money is still a necessity in today's world. Um, but it's more reframing. Okay. Wh what does life look like if it wasn't every month? And this is how it was for the most of history. Um, and still is for many Americans. Even you have uh, low wage retail workers, which I, they go week to week and they don't know how many hours they'll get. They don't know when they'll be able to work, how many hours they can work. They want to work more hours, but they can't get them from many of the retail companies. So it's uh, 
this idea that you need to have a steady income holds back many people, especially many creative people who I think have a lot of gifts to offer. And that's where it fires me up, um, where I kind of push people, hey, take some risks, tap into your savings, pay yourself. Yeah, and I would I would only add to that, like um, when we talk about stable and stability, replace um, money with relationships. Um, because in a world that is always changing, right, like we are – regardless of if we've got like the corporate job or not, that job's going to disappear. I got an email uh, from someone very close to me literally this morning that said she lost her job just before Christmas because they decided to downsize, even though they had recruited her, built a job around her and her skills. Like there's, there's just no commitment there, right. From an organization's perspective. So if we know we're always going to go through these periods in our lives, what sort of stability can we guarantee other than money? Well, we can guarantee the stability of, of friends, of family, of peers, of mentors. And that's the type of stability that I think about um, when we talk about what needs to be sort of steady in our lives when we're, you know, taking on the status quo and, and building our building our futures for ourselves. So, um, you know, for instance, in my programs, it's all about peers supporting one another as as they go through their their career change. Um, and it's about having mentors come in and, and play a role as well. Um, and even like at a personal level. Right. So, you know, I'm taking on um, this the, the quote unquote um, financial risk of, of starting a business. And so what did we do? Um, you know, we moved to a neighborhood where we could get childcare from um, uh, our family, right? So, you know, there's there's different ways that you can reduce these or create these stabilities um, based on where you are in in your life. So, like, you know, you can move, um, for example, Paul, to a to a country that has much lower costs um, and be around uh, folks that um, you know can provide you. Um, the support because they're maybe all uh, solopreneurs and and on my end I can move closer to family and get that sort of state stability and support um, supporting and helping raise our child um, and surround myself with um, the mentors that I lean on um, when I run into challenges and so these are all the sort of alternate solutions. I think that's your next business opportunity, sort of a solopreneur community where we're all raising each other's kids. <laughs> <laughs> I think that I think they tried that in the '60s and it didn't turn yeah, out. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, yeah, now now they're trying the the extremely high price version of it with uh, We Live, but yeah, um, I don't see that as super promising as a very generous uh, solution. <laughs> but um, so a couple questions I just want to leave people with on this one is. Uh, and the pain of asking these questions is they might literally be costly to ask, uh, because if you come up with a different response, you might have to make a change in your life. Um, so a couple questions just to take away from this one. If I'm not really drawn to doing the work I'm doing, what does that mean? And why do I keep doing it? And then the second question is what could be the different possibilities if that is the case? that I don't want to be doing what I'm doing. And you don't have to change, right? You can acknowledge that, like, I want to be doing something else, but for now I'm just going to opt into what I'm doing. And I think the key, like, I think a lot of what uh, Jeff and I reflect on is just contemplate this, right? And opt into what you are doing. Don't just accept it as a default. Yeah. So, so do you want to take us uh, career myth number five? 
Yeah, career myth number five. I don't know what I want to do before – wait, I've got to know what I am going to do before I begin thinking about changing directions, right? So in other words, people are going like, I need to have this five-year plan uh, if I'm going to shift out of this current work into something else. And this is sort of um, a vicious cycle too, right? Because when we know something is not a good fit anymore – whether it's a job itself or a career more specifically, that doesn't necess necessarily mean we know what is, right? There's a whole journey involved, as we talked about before, right, in, in discovering your purpose, right, of figuring out what who you want to be in the world and what those next steps are. And so thinking that you have to have all of that figured out on top of the courage to just quit your job and and um, you know, go on that journey is, is just, it would be too overwhelming for anyone. So, you know, um, we, in, in the work that I do and, and, the, and the conversations I have with people, it's, it's really not about knowing everything or even anything, um, before you take your first small step. And there's a couple of reasons for this, both at a macro level and at a micro level, right? So at a, at a macro level, it's because, um, we live in this uh, VUCA world, which is um, you know, an acronym for volatile, unpredictable, complex, and ambiguous. What that means is for the first time in history, and this started you know, at least a decade ago, um, things aren't just accelerating. They are moving in so many different directions that you know, two-thirds of people that are in middle school today will, will end up in careers and jobs that haven't even been invented yet. Right. So you can't plan for a future you don't know will exist. So anything greater than a three month plan is kind of a waste of time. Um, and, and if that's the case, you know, what's the strategy for moving forward? Well, it's a kind of the way I define it is it's really the opposite of parenting. So instead of, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Instead of, um, making a plan and then pursuing it, I actually want you to act first and then reflect later. I want you to take your toe and dip it in the water and see what the ripple effects are and then take another step and then another step. Because if you spend all this time planning something out for years and years and then all of a sudden that industry disappears or all of a sudden you know that, that, uh, that entire possibility of, of direction is just you know, negated because of some new obstacle or possibility in your life, then you have wasted so much time. Um, and so it's all about acting first. Um, and so small steps, by the way, and you can do these small steps um, without quitting your job too. You can start to experiment in new directions. You can start getting feedback from people. Um, I mean, we have all sorts of ways, uh, and I know you do too, Paul, for, for just sort of testing and prodding and prototyping um, without quitting your job and without even knowing what it is you want to do. Um, right. And that's, that's why people like us exist too. Yeah, and I think the, the corollary to this myth is that you need to make a big, bold leap. Yeah. And in my conversations with people who have made leaps, it's actually a series of smaller, either they got a sign or a conversation they had or an experiment that went well that gave them basically the courage to keep going. So uh, the mindset I have people uh, take here is come up with a experiment if you want to frame it like this. You can also frame it as a volunteer um, opportunity, something you want to step into that is very small, like you might just want to offer to coach one person one time, right? 
But stepping into that is going to force you, one, to learn. And then, like, being in that moment, you're going to figure out, okay, one, do I want to keep going with this? And two, like, what do I do next? Right. Um, but you can't figure out what's in that until you're actually in it. Um, there is no way to actually plan for it. Um, and the goal of a journey is not actually comfort. We mistake comfort for, um, security, right? Um, but the true security comes from constantly being uncomfortable and asking the questions of why and where, what should I do next? Yeah. And at a minimum, that makes you feel very alive. <laughs> yeah. And there are downsides to this, right? I mean, I'm sure you, like me, like face constant moments of uncertainty, but uh, the rate of learning and figuring out what's next on the journey is just a lot faster um, now than what I was experiencing previously. Totally. And by the way, since since it is, you know, the, the new year, when uh, my highest uncertainty comes when I'm gathered around family, right, during the holidays, Right. right. And, and everyone's asking, right? Like, so how's the business doing? Or so <laughs> you're going to have more kids or so like all of these things, right? That go with this, you know, at, at least um, from the mouths that it comes from this uh, traditional notion of the planning that has to be um, and, and the sort of foundation that has to be in place um, in order for you to take those next steps. And, and you know, I, I definitely, you know, it, it, it makes for some moments where I'm, I, I, I think anyone who goes on this journey is going to have moments of, of doubt, self-doubt and uncertainty. Um, and then I just remind myself, for instance, um, no, I don't know how I'm going to pay for college 18 years later for children. But you know what? Like, um, that's OK, because the foundation is not about money for me and my family. The foundation is about like being super happy and loving and supportive of one another. And if we can get that foundation right, then like the other stuff we'll worry about uh, at a sort of as needed basis. Love that. So let's shift to career myth number six. And this is mine. This is one I've dove into pretty deeply over the past year in my own life and just talking to a lot of people who have taken breaks. So the myth is taking an extended break is irresponsible and needs to wait until retirement. Now, most people don't explicitly say this, but they kind of default into believing it um, by their actions of saying like, oh, I can't take a break in between jobs. Um, I can't take more than a week off from work. And I like to ask people, like, where is it written that says you have to work 40 years straight from 22 to 62, and then you get to take a break? Um, I just don't think that is written anywhere. Like, we're only holding ourselves accountable um, for that based on our beliefs. So what I've found in talking to people is that uh, very few people are ever able to make shifts or get to a state of reflection in one or two weeks, especially in the traditional kind of vacation, like you need to do a lot of fun stuff uh, type mindset. So um, I talked to one person, Jacqueline Jensen, where she was just feeling overwhelmed with work. She was what you would call successful. She founded a company. Um, it was basically killing it. Uh, written a book or actually the book came from when she uh, took the break Um because the first month, she just felt terrible because she wasn't working. Uh, but it forced her to grapple with, okay, what's behind this? What are the emotions I'm feeling? And um, as she started to um, 
find a new level of energy. She found all these projects that were like deep down to what she was really pulled towards. And that's kind of what I urge people is like, how can you come up with ways such that you can take a um, break or a step away um, such that you can figure out what, what are those deeper things that are calling you? What are those things you were called to as a kid when you were younger? What were those dreams you have that you might be, uh, hiding? So it's, uh, I don't know if you have, uh, um, recommendations for this, but I ask people like, why not ask your work if you can take unpaid leave, right? Nobody ever asks for this, but everyone I've ever worked with that asks for it gets it. Um, it, we work in a pretty good time in the U.S. where you can actually get treated pretty well. You just have to ask for it and carve it out for yourself. I love that, by the way. I love I love this um, myth in in every respect. I mean, um, first of all, I think this this idea of of waiting to be retired before we take a break is is not only um, you know something from our parents' generation, but it's something. That as a result of our parents' generation, there's this guilt that laid upon us that if we um, do take a break in the middle of our careers, that we will be unhirable um, as a result. And I, like, 100% have yet to see someone whose story of taking a break didn't provide more opportunity rather than less opportunity and when they choose to come back to, you know, a more traditional full-time role because they have a tremendous story to tell, right? right. Why, why they took a break, what they did on that break, because 99 times out of 100, the person behind the desk is going to be thinking, damn, I should have done that too. <laughs> <laughs> and, That's so true. Right? And in addition, in a, in a time now where there are so many ways for us to sort of um, – develop our own skills and competencies um, in in a more personalized way. When we take these breaks, we can actually, you know, come back to the workforce at a far greater level than when we left. Um, and, and that can be anything. I mean, on any number of topics. Um, but again, what I find to be most interesting is the of the top five or top 10 uh, skills that are demanded by traditional companies in the world. Um, I think the eight of the 10 are soft skills, um, right. which is to say those come and improve by taking extended breaks, right? Our ability to empathize, our ability to problem solve, our ability to collaborate, our, our ability to work globally. I mean, imagining that you're taking this break, doing some traveling or taking this break and doing some volunteering or taking this, any of those things are going to improve those skills for you. And all of those will translate into more opportunities if you spin it right. Right. And I think we'll get to this too with some challenges we face in life. But if you don't take the breaks, eventually life's going to force a break on you, whether it's through a health challenge or everyone has a challenge eventually. And I think for me, it was a health crisis. Um, you'll talk a bit about uh, a challenge you faced, but um, it, I, I'm thinking about it much more as like, how can I get these micro breaks now such that like if I do face a crisis down the road, um, which is basically <laughs> inevitable as a human, um, how, how are you more resilient and more prepared and uh, more robust? And uh, the, the second takeaway I want to add here is that you might actually be unhirable because you might change your mind yeah. <laughs> about going back to where you came from, right? hundred percent. That's totally true. And by the way, I also loved your, your comment about 
going in and, and asking for unpaid leave. Um, because yeah, you know, we live in a world that in theory, if the organizations and companies um, say they value human capital the way they claim and all the articles and, and, and podcasts and such, that they want um, a healthy, happy you right, right. in that role. And if taking the time off is going to enable that, then they're going to support it. Um, and I just love the idea of, 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 you know, going out there and taking the risk and, and, and asking that. Yeah. And I think what holds that back is not the, that you, there is a rule against this. It's that we're taught to think we're not supposed to be vulnerable at work. Mm. Um, vulnerable. But, what, what way do you mean vulnerable in this context? So in this context, perhaps going to a manager or someone you trust in the organization being like, listen, I am struggling. Mm. I am just like mentally not here. I'm not being my best self. Like, I don't know what to do. I don't want to leave the job, but like, could I potentially take some unpaid leave just to prioritize myself? Um, I think people are more scared of that conversation, um, than taking a break or like losing the income or something like that. And you might just find that they're like, just take a break and we'll keep paying you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Wow, that's a, Who knows? that's a really great point. I really like that. And and it is true. I mean, um, you know, w we are so afraid to show that we, you know, we're not coping well with other things going on in our lives. Right. Um, and it's funny because, you know, my work partner, well, I, I have several, but one of the people working full time with me, um, you know, this person is taking tremendous risks in, in their life and they're living at home. Um, you know, with their family and, and that can be a real challenge. And there are times where like we need to spend a couple hours talking about it because if we don't get, you know, everyone feeling like mentally, um, you know, um, energized and capable, then we're not going to get any, it's just going to spiral, right? Just like you said. And if you can't create an atmosphere to have that sort of vulnerability, then you're not going to be getting the most out of one another as human beings, not just as employees or partners, that sort of thing. Right. So what is career myth number seven? Ah, so I love this one. And I definitely give you props for coming up with it, Paul. Um, so career myth number seven is it's fine to take a risk when you are young, but you can't do it when you have kids. So obviously, this is one for me to answer, right? So I founded my company, Project X, three weeks before my son was born. Um, now, I didn't necessarily plan for it to be that way, um, but the, the reality is that I think MIT did a study and found that the average age of an entrepreneur is not a 20 something working out of a garage or working out of their dorm room, it's actually 42. Um, and the average age of a, a entrepreneur running like a high growth company is 45. So this whole notion, this whole myth that, um, taking these sort of risks are only for the young is, is really like, uh, first of all, it's, it's statistically wrong. And secondly, there's so many more reasons to be doing it when you are, you know, more my age and running a family, not the least of which is like, how cool is it to be energized by work and your children so that, um, you know, I can be more present for my son, for instance, because I'm so happy about what I'm doing the other eight hours. That doesn't mean, of course, you know, because I'm running a business. So there are things that, that I'm, I'm, I struggle with or I'm stuck on. Those don't enter my head, but I don't have a sadness. 
That's yeah. for sure. I'm not carrying a regret or, or anything. So when I'm with my son, I am a hundred percent, um, with my son and, and, um, you know, that, that, that's a really powerful reason to be doing the, the work that you love and, and taking the risk. Yeah. And you, I'd, I'd love to know, I'm guessing just because you do have your son, right? That it probably makes you contemplate and reflect much more seriously on the work you are doing in a way that's like, okay, how can I be better over here such that I'm uh, being fully myself in all aspects of my life? Does that come up for you? Yeah. Well, it, Yes. And what it does in that sense, too, is it like I think children will probably do this for most people, but it, it, it forces you to really be really um, efficient with your time and somewhat um, avoid as much as possible this creeping aspect of work being 24 seven. Right. And your child knows very quickly when you're not paying attention, your child <laughs> very quickly that your phone is your life. Right. Because if I ever pull out my phone, my son wants to grab it. Right. He already wants to grab. It. He's not even two. Um, and you just see how addictive it is. Like and, and you just realize that all of these things that are sort of these negative feeds into um, how you could leave, lead your life become that much more obvious when you have a child in front of you. And so um, it just becomes actually, believe it or not, it, 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 it's transformative in that way that like you want to be present when they're there because um, they're going to call you out if you're not. And you're not going to get the best of either of the things in your life uh, if you're not. And we all know that. But um, children have a way of uh, being really honest about it, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, and I've I've been super curious about this because, I mean, I am still at a different stage of my life. I don't have kids, um, but it's definitely an option for the future. And I've met a bunch of people who are kind of living very different lives with kids. Um, I became friends with a couple who... Uh, basically lives in an RV with their four kids uh, <laughs> for the past like several years. And it was amazing to just hear their perspective on it. And there were some challenges, uh, but there was just a completely different context for how they were being with each other. And it was amazing to hear how their kids were thinking about opportunities in the world. Like one of them opted for college. One of them just like started a company um, and, and it was just like, it increased all the uh, ideas and options for the kids as well. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, um, you know, I love that you always talk about, you know, kind of where we think of society and business now is is the smallest percentage of, of human existence in terms of um, the role that money played or, or a consistent full-time job. The same is true for space because a lot of times people are, are talking about money so they can have um, a, a big house or even a house. And for the longest time, we all lived in, you know, multi multi-family, much less like um, multi-generation right. in the same bedroom. And and people turned out like wonderful, um, you know, from a family perspective and from a values perspective. And, um, you know, it, uh, it's an interesting reminder in New York, which is, um, <laughs> yeah, you can't have a lot of space in, yeah, even if you want, uh, you know, if we, if we have a, another child, they're, they're both going to be in the same room. It's not that we're going to move into a bigger place because that's not really how it works in New York city. 
right? Um, and what what are the benefits of that? Well, actually, it's really interesting to see how your kids engage with one another in the same room, and and um, and it's it's different. It's not better or worse, um, and that's a really powerful thing. Awesome. So, career myth number eight. Ah, uh, yes. I God, I can't tell you how many people I talk to that. Um, Maybe they're fed up with their job or maybe they're just not sure what they want to do next. But so they go, okay, I have no idea what I'm going to do next. So I think I should go spend a hundred grand on graduate school. Right. And and that's a minimum. Um, and, um, it's such a frustrating conversation, um, because it, 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 there's just so many other opportunities and solutions out there for any of us as individuals to, figure out what it is that we want to do rather than dropping hundred K and going into debt. Um, and right. that's not to say graduate school isn't the perfect solution. I think it is. If you know very specifically what you want to do, um, if you know very specifically what the options are going to be coming out of school, um, and those are great reasons, but if you're not sure what you want to do and you're using it as a transition, um, I think there are a lot more, to be honest, there's a lot more fun, inventive <laughs> and cheap right. ways to do it. Right. Um, and so just, you know, well, there's a lot of ways to talk about this. Um, but, uh, you know, uh, let's talk about it maybe with an example, um, first. So I ran into someone who, um, is a lawyer. Um, and as is often the case, um, not very happy with their career choice. And we're, we're thinking about going back to school because um, they were like, maybe I want to like, you know, work in a business or start up a company or that sort of thing. And I was like, OK, so that's, you know, say it's one hundred, hundred and twenty five thousand dollars to go back uh, and get an MBA. Right. Here are all the other ways that you could think about that money in the short term. Right. If you want to explore what it's like to work in a startup, like why don't you move um, to Peru, for instance, where they have a huge startup ecosystem and go experience like working there for several months. You'll get to live in another environment, test yourself outside your comfort zone, do some startup work. And by the way, it's going to cost you one tenth of the price and you're going to have this unbelievable experience. Right. Or you know, go travel. I know that you talk about like, how much do you um, think that you can travel the world for these days? You, you know, much better than I do. Uh, my cost of living right now is down to 1500 a month in Taiwan. And that's probably on the high end. Yeah. Uh, so, well, as long as I stay out of most of the US and even then, um, I have, so I have three different friends I've interviewed for the podcast over the last year. Um, ranging from 10,000 to 24,000 US a year uh, for an entire year of travel, all expenses all in. Yep. Uh, the 10,000 was actually a year, I think it was a year in the US or a big chunk of it was in the US. Um, and they use different ways to save money. Um, but with remote working now and the connectivity of the internet, like what I tell people is, if you're going to spend 150 grand on MBA tuition, and that's what it is now for like a top program. Um, I am a graduate of one of these programs. So take everything I say with that in mind. Um, but it's gone up. Um, I think tuition for a two year has gone up more than 60 grand since I started eight years ago. Um, so this is not a static thing. And an you, would, MB you would know better than others. 
they funnel you only into what jobs? Like, what are the options? Right. Well, you can do anything at all times, right? But you once you're in that environment, you have the mindset of, well, I got this type of MBA. I should be this kind of person, right? Um, or, I mean, I still get this today. Like, you got this MIT degree. Like, how can you not try to earn 200 grand a year, yep. right? Um, and I don't have a good answer to that. And I feel pretty shitty when people say that to me. And, um, there, there is like some questioning I have, but, um, I know a lot of people that go do these programs and end up finding, okay, I don't actually want to be a consultant or a high priced corporate worker or, um, these things. I actually just want to teach or actually just want to like volunteer or work in global health. Um, so it's, um, the question, and so let's get to what do you do about it? The questions, I think you have a good exercise you're going to offer, but the question is, what do you want to do after grad school? And then my second question is, what is stopping you from doing that now, or at least testing it out in a much cheaper way? That's yeah. all I urge people to do. If you then find, okay, I definitely want to keep going to grad school, go do it. It's still pretty awesome to go to grad school. They're great environments for learning. They're going to shift your mind. They're going to... uh help you meet different people, but just go in with uh, open eyes, I think. Yeah. And I would, you know, I would add on that a couple of things. So one, I think someone will say um, to the question, what do you want to do after grad school? I don't know. That's why I'm thinking about going to grad school. One of the activities I have to um, help with that is something really simple. And I've done this with high school kids and I've done this with people in their thirties and everywhere else in between. Um, it's, what are, what are 20 experiences you want to have in the next 10 years? Just write them down. Maybe even five years. What are the 20 things you want to learn a new language? You want to climb Mount Kilimanjaro? Do this activity actually with a bunch of folks. Start stealing some of the, their ideas if you can't come up with them. There's nothing wrong with that. Put it out there on Facebook and have a, you know, all your friends contribute to it. You're going to come up with this ridiculous list. That in and of itself is going to just sort of spark your – you know, curiosity and creative urges, and you can go do that. And if you start to work on that list over the same two years that you're going to go to grad school, I guarantee that is going to move you in directions you had never thought of before. It's going to move, you know, open up, or it's going to connect you to some of those breadcrumbs around purpose that we talked about. And um, talk about uh, meeting a new network of folks. People talk about going to grad school so they can you know, meet all, you know, have a whole new network in a new direction. There's no better way of doing that than exploring all these things that you want to do in the world because all of those are going to require um, engaging with folks that you haven't connected with in the past. So this is a super fun and simple activity, at least the start of it is, actually shooting <laughs> on it is a little bit more challenging. Um, but it's just another way to start. It's another way for you to, um, you know, get outside your current, mode of thinking and getting creative about how to explore possibilities rather than, um, you know, putting 150 K down. And there are other ways to do it too. Another fun activity I have, I don't know if we've talked about this, Paul, but it's called worst idea possible. So yeah, I uh, love this idea of yours. Yeah. You wrote about it in quartz, right? I'll yeah. link to that. Yeah. 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 Um, and, th and that's all about getting a group of folks together, um, and saying, what is the worst way for me to, Basically, you could say, what is the worst way for me to explore my career over the next two years, right? So you take the topic that you're stuck on, right? Because let's say you're only thinking that grad school is a solution, right? So you're saying, okay, 
In my mind, grad school is the only way I can imagine getting unstuck and moving out of this. What is the worst ideas about how I can like advance or change or do something different in my career over the next few years? And you start throwing these ridiculous ideas onto a whiteboard and you get your friends to do it. And what happens is it gives you the permission to like think outside the the box that you're stuck in and you end up with obviously stuff that you won't do but little nuggets of real possibilities sort of um sewn into those crazy ideas and from there you can start to piece together something new and it is a super fun activity to do my favorite yeah my favorite example is um a woman in one of my programs um, who you know thought she wanted to start a coffee shop, but like was really stuck on how to do it, and so we did a worst idea possible, and she was like, "All right, the worst idea for starting a coffee shop, I'm gonna only open it from like 10 p.m. until 5 a.m." <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, that's a pretty good worst idea," but I love it, right? But what came from that thread is: is there actually something that's super early in the morning? that you right. can tie yourself to, to create like the start of your business. And of course there are. Um, and so that's sort of where she started her focus. Um, that's awesome. so yeah. yeah. So career myth number nine, I'll, uh, offer this one. I can't change now after spending years in this field or equally, I can't move into a new field that I'm not trained in. Right. I think the, the way this plays out from what I hear from people is that, um, well, I, I can start doing X once somebody hires me for that, right? So there's m- many ways we can go with this, but, um, I think one of the most powerful arguments against this mindset is maybe, uh, just your personal story. Yeah. I mean, I've got <laughs> several, but about a, well, uh, about 16 or 17 months ago, um, I was hit and almost killed by a drunk driver in Boston and, Thankfully, uh, my family was not in the car, um, but I was uh, knocked out instantly and um, they, I needed to be rescued by the jaws of life. Um, and I woke up naked in an ambulance, which is another story and experience in and of itself. Um, and, you know, I've, I've spent um, the last uh, almost year and a half dealing with a, a TBI, which is a traumatic brain injury. Um, and what's been so interesting is, um, you know, at, for me, I had already started down this path of, of doing the business uh, that I loved. So, um, you know, I, I didn't have a moment. Uh, I didn't honestly even have a moment where I thought to myself, God, how could I be doing this work? My life is so fleeting. Instead, it was for me, at least, like I really want to double down on the time I spend with my family, which is so important to me. And the like the focus that I have on on this work. Um, because as, as I experienced, like, you know, things could just disappear in a heartbeat and, and, um, you had no idea it was, it was coming. You don't see it coming. Um, and I think that, you know, a lot of people, there's a lot of stories of where it takes that sort of experience to change direction. But I, I really, um, you know, the reason I built this business is cause I don't want it to, I don't want it to take a, a car crash or, um, right right? Or a health scare, like what you had to, to force, uh, this sort of change. Um, and I think what holds a lot of people back is a word that we hear a lot of people talk about, right? It's, it's this imposter syndrome, right? Um, and 
what's interesting about imposter syndrome is we all have it. Like it's just, it's not, it's not just for those of us that are thinking about changing directions. I'd love to use this example. Like, do you think um, any doctor that goes in to perform a heart transplant for the first time doesn't have this idea of imposter syndrome? Like we right. all do. Otherwise, there would only be one person in the world doing heart transplants, right? And 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 so we um, we learn, and also they don't do the heart transplant by themselves. They're around for other people that have already done it, right? So we surround ourselves with the people that can give us the support and we surround ourselves with the people that can encourage us. And we take these, uh, we take these small steps. Um, and we recognize that, um, we all go through these anxieties and, and moments where we feel like, who am I to be doing this? Um, right. but who are you not to be is really the question. Right. Yeah. I, I love that. And, the cons the idea around first of all i mean just thanks for sharing your uh your story of like going through that and i think i actually had a similar experience of going through my health crisis it didn't really cause me to like radically change anything but really just like double down on like how do i design a life to do work that matters to me and like take that more seriously and not just be like screwing around the corporate world <laughs> and uh ch just try to have a little more courage cuz you don't know um there, there is no later sometimes. Yep. Um, and, uh, the second thing just around like the heart surgeon, right? You said there's other people there that have been there before. And this is something I urge people to do is, uh, reach out to people and have a curiosity conversation. Uh, so if somebody's taken your path, uh, and you don't know anyone that's done it, just reach out to them and share your vulnerability. Say, Hey, I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm trying to reach out to you because I'm trying to meet like one person has done this. I'm sure it's a crazy experience. I don't want anything from you, but I just love like 30 minutes if I could pick your brain and ask you some questions. I love having those conversations with people um, because it gives them that friend that says, oh, okay, this person did it and they're, they don't actually know what they're doing either. Um, gives me a little more courage to head in that direction. Yep, I agree. And, and the second one is uh, just create your own learning experience. I get... I worked in strategy consulting and I get people who reach out to me at least once a week and say, sir, how can you help me break into strategy consulting? Um, they say, sir. <laughs> well, I get, I got a lot of reach outs from uh, abroad for some reason. Gotcha. Um, and they call me, they call me <laughs> sir. I have, a, I have a strong following in Quora for some reason. And I get a lot of, uh, Hey, sir. Like, cool. um, but, um, P and the mistake people are making is saying, once I'm a strategy consultant, I can do X, right? I can then do the skills and type of work. Um, when I tried to break into strategy consulting in 2008, there was literally no information about it. YouTube didn't exist. LinkedIn wasn't used. Um, there were like these guides you could download called wet feet guides, which would tell you about the industry. Yeah. But there was like maybe one or two books about some of the concepts you that's not true anymore. Like you search McKinsey consulting skills. It's all there. In fact, I built a whole course to teach people how to do this. I'll give it away to free to anyone who wants it. Um, you can now learn the skills of how to be a consultant, but people don't want that still, right? They're still defaulting and I need the job first, right? Mm -hmm. Um, so it doesn't matter if you're not trained in something. Um, you can go after it, 
But also just take the owning a responsibility to learn it and expose yourself to the ideas now or reach out to somebody and say, hey, I'd love to consult to your organization. I'm trying to learn. I'm going to take it super serious, but like, give me this opportunity. People don't turn that down. Um, and that's how I started uh, freelance consulting on my own, um, which I found quickly that I wasn't as good of a consultant as I thought, even though I had worked at these fancy firms. Um, I just had never reoriented to doing it on my own. Mm. Um, but it forced me to learn and keep growing. I love that. I, I, um, it's, you know, just two things to add to that in particular, one about reaching out. So first of all, um, yes, it takes courage to reach out, but, um, no one is ever, if someone doesn't respond, for instance, if I don't respond, uh, and I always tell people that I meet, like, please shoot me an email. I would be happy to meet up for a coffee. If I don't respond, it's because I get a hundred emails a day <laughs> and it has nothing to do with you. It's never about you. Right. So email me again until I respond and I, and I will do it. Right. So, yeah. Um, you know, getting folks past that assumption that if they don't respond, then like, that's it, right? That's, that's the first thing. Um, and, and then the, the, well, th that's really the main one and, and just getting, you know, that, that resiliency to, to keep trying, um, and keep engaging until you find the person that will have that conversation with you, um, is fantastic. And in particular, I, I, you know, I think a lot of people are asking these days, particularly in, in an age when we're um, talking a lot about sort of inequality and access to networks as well as education, like, hey, I'm I'm a minority or, hey, I'm of this um, ethnic group or, or you know, I come from this background and I, I know no one in these fields. Well, that's exactly why people like us exist. That's exactly why LinkedIn is designed the way it is. That's exactly why podcasts are out there. Like, Everyone is putting out their contact info. You just have to make the effort to reach out. And people are, are in particular, they're actively looking to support people that come from right. different backgrounds. At least a lot of the folks that I know are. Um, and, you know, I just want to encourage everyone to, to do that. Yeah. I did a, a, a career talk with a woman in, in Ghana. Um, on <laughs> That's awesome. Because um, she had found me and, and connected with me over LinkedIn and I was like, heck yeah, let's do it. Um, and you know, those sorts of people are, um, you know, I think there's a lot of people like you and I that are out there willing to do that. Well, yeah, I <laughs> it's so cool when people reach out from different parts of the world. I've had that happen and they're like, I can't believe you responded. And it's like, stop being so selfish. I can learn so much too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but, uh, let's close it out with career myth. 10. I think this uh, hits home close to us. Um, but career myth 10 is uh, working as an entrepreneur, starting your own business, uh, working as a solopreneur will finally give me the happiness I seek. Um, and I love this one because I, I always try to urge people that like working on your own is not the answer to your problems, right? You still need to find the work that brings you alive. You still need to find the community you want to be a part of. You still need to find the way you want to engage with the world. Um, and just some facts. Um, people love the ownership and flexibility of gig working. But when you ask them, like, would you be willing to compromise on some of the flexibility and ownership to get more stability and in income? Uh, Sarah Kessler's written about this for, uh, in her book, Gigged. Uh, 
people still end up opting for the the money instability. So there is downside. There's the uncertainty. We've talked about that with some of the money issues. Um, But just know what you're getting into, right? Just like it it goes well with our first career myth of like your dream job is going to make everything happy. Um, I think going out as an entrepreneur or solopreneur is really kind of throwing yourself to uncertainty and saying like, I do want to be in a journey with that. Um, and constantly have to grapple and reflect. Um, and, and for me, that's what makes it fun. But um, would love to hear your reflections too. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm trying to think of, of ways that, well, yeah, so my reflection is this. Um, this is my second go around at kind of like being a full-blown entrepreneur um, and I failed the first time. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm super happy to, to talk about that at another time. But my point being is our ability to deal with that uncertainty, I think grows with each experience, right? So if you have only had a full-time job, um, and all these amazing benefits and you go cold Turkey to being a solo entrepreneur, I think very quickly you are going to find yourself very uncomfortable with that uncertainty. But if you continue to sort of bounce in and out a little bit and test the waters, figure out how to grow your capacity to deal with that uncertainty. And there are lots of different ways to do it, but think about ways that you can do it so that when you are ready to, to kind of um, be out there on your own, um, you've, you've built some, somewhat uh, a bulletproof vest, so to speak, um, in terms of handling that uncertainty. Because without a doubt, as you were saying, there are times when you're like, whoa, this is a tough week. Like I'm feeling like really insecure about like, you know, what the financials are going to be over the next month. Or like, you know, I just had a call with my friend who makes X hundreds of thousands of dollars and it's, you know, made me uncomfortable again. Right. So um, just building that sort of um, foundation to, of, of, of resiliency for that sort of insecurity, I think, is, is going to be a big leg up over the long run. Yeah, and some specific uh, actions I recommend for people. I, I do this with a lot of people. I, I challenge them to put stuff out there publicly, and they hate me for this. And then they're usually thanking me after, but um, write something publicly um, create a podcast or go on someone's podcast. Like you can find a podcast about anything. Like <laughs> Google something you know deeply about and search podcasts and you can find something and you can usually just ask them, Hey, could I come on and explore this topic? Um, there it is like vol- try to find volunteer opportunities where you have to like take a complete ownership position. Um, just to like experience what's it like to completely make call the shots and, uh, do something on my own. Uh, those, those are some ideas I have. Um, another one, one of, I ran a short course, um, helping people make these shifts. And one of the people did a Facebook live cooking class, um, because he wanted to learn how to cook his dishes from in, from his family's, uh, background in India. And he just created a cooking class. And because he committed to this publicly, he like, 
had to basically learn how to cook it that week and then did the class. And it, it was pretty funny. Like it didn't go super smooth, but he was like, Oh my God, it's addictive. And now he's like addicted to all these public experiments. He's, he tried like stand up comedy. He's doing like public writing and it's like, who knows where he'll end up in years. But, um, I love it. Just like stepping into that space. You can learn so much. I love it. I love it. Awesome. So, 10 myths. We uh, hopefully have changed some minds and also given you some actionable things to uh, work on. I just want to say, Jeff, I really appreciate the work you do so much. Uh, I think you come at it from your own experience, but you also go deep in the reading and also just uh, spend so much time learning uh, with people. Um, I'd highly encourage people reach out, especially in uh, the Northeast uh, U.S. for your in-person programs. Uh, but maybe you just want to give uh, a little more context on like how people can uh, engage with uh, your project X if they want to go deeper. Yeah, thank you. And, and Paul, equally, like um, I'm a huge fan of, of the way you're building and living your life um, and the way you're sharing it with other folks. Um, you know, it, it, yeah, I, I definitely I, I see why we enjoy having long conversations together. Um, so for folks that are interested, um, again, you know, Project X is all about, um, you know, our mission is to help a million people build more purposeful careers and lives. And we do that a number of ways. So we have a, um, a program called the Purpose Accelerator. There's actually one kicking off uh, the weekend of January 18th and 19th here in New York City. Um, so it's an intensive in-person weekend in New York and then four online sessions after that. So as long as you can make it down to New York uh, and it's a holiday weekend, um, you can participate. Um, we also have a weekly top 10 purposeful jobs listing, um, which I strongly encourage you to, to sign up for on our site. Um, and then if you really want to get out of your comfort zone, we actually run programs um, in uh, Central America and Latin America and in, in uh, Guatemala, Ecuador, the Dominican Republic and Nicaragua, where people can spend up to two months um, working on um, social innovation projects and consulting projects and really experience what it's like um, to develop solutions um, in parts of the world that um, they're not accustomed to, 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 to grow their empathy, uh, to learn how to problem solve in new ways, um, and to really um, build a, a very different future for themselves. So um, check it out, yourprojectx.com. Awesome. And I, this should be going up in the next week. So uh, we're talking about January 2019, if people are listening to this sometime in the future. But uh, I'll link to that in the show notes. And uh, thanks again for the conversation today, Jeff. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Boundless Podcast. If you have feedback, guest suggestions, or ideas I should explore, I'd really love to hear from you. One of the best things about this journey I've been on is connecting with all the people from around the world who are resonating with some of the ideas, some crazy, some better, some worse, uh, that I'm putting out into the world. Uh, you can email me at paul at think-boundless.com or find me on the various socials, which I link on my site. So I'm focused on keeping this podcast ad-free uh, clear of requests for ratings on various platforms. Basically, just want to keep it useful, interesting, and worth listening to. Uh, you guys hear enough about different underwear and sleep mattresses that people are pushing. I mean, how many mattresses can uh, people sell? It's unbelievable. Um, anyway, if you do want to support this podcast 
and uh, support this crazy journey I'm on, uh, you can do that on Patreon through the show notes link. And this is just so much fun. And I really thank you for listening and the continued feedback and support. Hey, all. Thanks for listening to the episode. I really appreciate the support and especially always love when people reach out letting me know what they think about the specific episodes. If you want to go deeper into Pathless Path World, you can, of course, check out my book. It's sold It's going to hit 50,000 soon. I think by the time you're hearing this, it will probably have already sold 50,000, which is mind-blowing. But I continue all the support of people that buy and share the book. If you want to meet others on Pathless Paths, I have a community, which you can find at pathlesspath.com slash membership. And you can join and meet hundreds of others around the world trying to make sense of weird paths and meeting others along the way. Thank you so much for listening. Hope you have a good day.